Good morning. Let's turn to the Word of God this morning. In John chapter 10, we're going to read the first 18 verses. This is the Word of the Lord for us this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brings all his own out, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they will never follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and find and in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and doesn't and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves and the sheep leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but from myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. All of you, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. So once again, in John chapter 10 that we just read from, uh, Jared led us through uh, a moment ago. So we're going to be looking at that in a little bit here. We're going to be talking today about men in the image of God. We had planned that for last week, but the Lord ordained that it would be this week. And so uh, here we are. Men in the image of God. We already talked about women in the image of God a little over a month ago. And now we're going to talk about men. And some of the distinctives of how each of us, between the two different sexes, how we image God. Beginning with Adam, God established male headship. Men are to lead, to provide for, and to protect. But it is the second Adam who provides the standard for how New Covenant men, those of us who are under the New Covenant, how we fulfill our calling. Jesus' example of sacrificial love is our standard. And, well, how do we know that? Am I just making that up? No. In our study of Ephesians, which we're coming up to eventually here to Ephesians 5.22 and following, but when Paul is talking to and addressing the men, the husbands, he says in verse 25 that 
We husbands are to love our wives the same way that Christ loves his church, having given himself up for her. So it's that sacrificial love of Christ that is the standard for us in our headship. That mindset of sacrificial love is exemplified for us and illustrated for us here in John chapter 10. And the contrast that we find there in that passage is between two different kinds of men. There's the shepherd who lays down his life for those he loves, and the man who will sacrifice nothing because he only loves himself. And we're going to see how that contrast between those two different kinds of men, how that plays out. God has designed men to lead, but... Biology alone isn't sufficient to enable us to lead and love the way that Jesus leads and loves. And remember, He is our standard. You see, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms sinners that every one of us men were, that transforms sinners into shepherds. We, we, we're not capable of being a godly, God-honoring shepherd just because we are men. It is only through being transformed into Christ's image that men become distinctly Christian in their headship. And remember, we've been talking about this for a while now. How is it that we, as men and women in Jesus Christ, how do we exemplify whether it's headship for the men or, as one person calls it, helpership for the women, how do we do that in a way that is distinctive from the world and from other, other religions even? And sometimes even other sub, you know, Christian subgroups that are, are not true believers. How are we distinct? Well, you know, so this, this sacrificial love, and all, that sounds great. And so as a, as the ones who are called, those of us men, uh, are called to headship with sac- through sacrificial love, it sounds great, but along comes feminism. We've talked about that a little bit. So feminism, which is standing on the shoulders of liberalism. Remember liberalism, it came in at the, uh, toward the end of the 19th century, the late 1800s. Feminism building on that. Feminism wants to erase the distinct roles and natures of men and women. They want to say, okay, there, there's no distinct, there's no differences at all in role, in nature, in any of that. And so our roles and everything should be, they say, interchangeable. But we've seen already in our discussion of Genesis 1 and 2, men and women reflect the image of God. They both do. And there are ways that we talked about already where we, men and women, uh, reflect God's image similarly. You know, we're persons and we have wills and we can make decisions and moral distinctions and things like that. But there are ways as well in which we image God that are distinct. And so in distinct ways, the man images God through headship and the woman images God through being a helper.
So our first point that I want to try to drive home today is this. Men distinctly reflect God's image through headship. Men distinctly reflect God's image through headship. And remember, think back again to Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at those passages and and what we developed there. And, and we saw that there were eight evidences in Genesis 1 and 2, in the original creation. Before the fall, there were eight things that stood out that showed that indeed God designed the male to be the head. For example, uh, the man's name is the name for mankind. And we also saw that Adam was created first. And because of that, he was responsible to teach Eve what God had given him, the instructions that God had given to Adam. Because Eve hadn't been created yet when God said, you can eat from anything in the garden, but this one fruit... There was one tree you may not eat from. Okay, he hadn't told, God did not tell Eve that directly. He told Adam, and he was to pass that on. So one of the ways, that teaching and leading aspect of his headship, he was responsible to do that. He also, he had the responsibility to lead. Uh, and then we saw that woman was made for the man, is what uh, Moses tells us there, and was also made from the man. Remember, from his rib. And then the man named the woman, just as he had the rest of creation, uh, the rest of, of the animals that God would bring to him to see what he would name them. He named the woman because God had given him headship. And then Adam, when he named her, he took the name God had given him, Ish, and gave the feminine form. He built it off of his name, Isha. So let's talk for a minute about three as those three aspects of headship I've already mentioned. So I said male headship involves leading. Adam was to, and this again, from the foundation. There's going to be other things we're going to talk about in, in coming uh, sermons but uh, that's going to develop this. But the, the original foundation was this. Adam was to teach Eve what God had said. He should have also led Eve away from the serpent and back to God. And he didn't do that. He just, he let her make the decision, and he's like, okay, whatever you want. And he should have said, "Mm -mm. I don't know what this guy's deal is, but it's not God. And even if you think he has a point, let's go talk to God. Okay? And he should have done that, and he didn't. But he was responsible to do that, leading. Headship also involves providing. Adam, God put Adam in the garden to cultivate it. Now, the wife was to help him in that, and she might do some work to help him, but it was his job to provide for his family. He was to cultivate the garden. And it involves protecting. He should have protected Eve from the serpent and from the serpent's lies. So, God endowed the man with qualities to fulfill his calling as head. And we can refer to the whole of those qualities as maleness. Maleness reflects God's image that was created into the man as God created man. He made him specifically designed for the role that he had intended for the man. And so he gave him all of, of that he would need, uh, at least on the, um, the biological, psychological, social level, but that won't be all that we'll see that man needs. God created us with that maleness that reflects his image, but Jesus taught us and he exemplified for us 
how godly men are to carry out that calling. Because, you know, God created Adam. He, hasn't, he wasn't sinful yet, but then he fell. Huge problem. How then are sinful men supposed to lead and to do it well? And, and of course, you know, men throughout history have uh, attempted to lead and have led and, and sometimes done it very badly. Okay? But God has shown men the way they ought to lead. And for those of us under the new covenant, we look to Jesus. Jesus taught us and he exemplified for us how godly men should carry out our calling. So look again at John 10, verses 11 through 15. Follow with me as I read. Jesus saying there, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who's not the owner of the sheep, he beholds the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling. He's not concerned about the sheep. He doesn't have care for those that he was assigned to care for. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father And I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, that takes us back to Ephesians 5, 25 and following. So why do we end up here in John 10? Because Paul said, men, you are to love your wives the way Christ loved the church. and He gave himself up for her. That's what Jesus is talking about right here, isn't it? He's telling them ahead of time, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. And then he did. And, and so he, Jesus, is the pattern, the standard for us, for men to follow in our headship. The strong, godly man is gentle like a good shepherd. That's what we, we glean from this, if we're following Jesus' example. Like a good shepherd, he's leading, protecting, providing for those he loves. He lays down his life for them. By contrast, the weak, self-centered man only loves himself. He has no love for those around him. And he runs at the first sign of adversity. So what then is maleness? Let's define it. Maleness is the unique giftedness from God that enables a man to serve God by leading, providing for and protecting those under his care. And you, you can see that in the example of Jesus in John 10 as the good shepherd. And so in, in that pattern's not at all far-fetched because what are elders called? So as elder, you know, we have the elder and overseer and what's the third? Shepherd, pastor, right? We are to imitate Christ in our headship. Maleness is the unique giftedness from God that enables a man to serve God. And that's important. We're serving God here. Men, we're not serving ourselves. And too often when, when I hear guys, you know, talking about, you know, I need her to submit to me. and you know, A lot of times it's all about, well, he wants his way. I have a lot more to say about that when we get into Ephesians 5, 25 and following, but... Our job is to serve God. We do that by leading, providing for, and protecting those under our care. God has put people under our care in most of our situations. And what we have to remember, because again, this is 
coming out of our study in Ephesians 5, what did Ephesians 5.18, which is, is serving as that, that section that in chapter 5 we were talking about there, there's that walking in wisdom and you do it, 5.18, not by being drunk with wine, but by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, that governs almost the rest of the book until you get to the, the armor of God. Okay? So all the way through these, these various family dynamics, household dynamics, it is, we have to have the filling of the Spirit in order to do this right. And so for men to think that I can do this, just, I'm a man, I can do this, you know, not without the Holy Spirit you can't, not, not right. You're not going to do it well. And, and so, as we talk about, as I gave you that definition, you might think, well, okay, it's kind of straightforward there how that's going to apply to husbands and fathers and church leaders, like church, the elders. But what about a single man? And I want to talk about single men because, for one, this really does, I don't want to leave them out, you know, so you guys are on the hook too with the rest of us, right? Um, but it really makes the point, okay? So let me show you. See, a, a single man, I'm going to pick a few here that don't have any authority over anybody, okay? How do they do this? Well, let's take, for example, an entry-level soldier. He has no authority over anybody, right? It's like everybody's telling him what to do, okay? And he doesn't get to tell anybody what to do. He has no authority. Well, how does he do this? You know, a lot of people, they, they overemphasize authority. It's like, well, you've got authority. You gotta, you know. What if you don't have authority? Well, he does protect the country he serves, even though he has no authority over them. So you take an entry-level soldier, and he doesn't have authority over us in this room. But he protects us. He puts his life on the line for us. Right? So you, see, you can see a godly man who is in that role very much should understand this and see that that's how he is glorifying God, even though he doesn't have any authority. Same would apply to an entry-level police officer uh, who doesn't have authority. Um, think about a, a single businessman. A single businessman who... And he's someone that doesn't have authority over anyone. Uh, he still may be doing things like protecting his aging parents. See, he's still protecting... What about providing for? Well, all of these men uh, are, are examples, if they're godly men, they're examples of working hard, earning money. Think back Ephesians 4, right? Instead of stealing, you should be working hard to provide for yourself and your family, but also to what? To give. Okay? So you see, they're providing because what are they doing? When they're giving their portion of, of their income... They're providing those uh, workers for the gospel, pastors and missionaries, and also they're providing for those in need of assistance. So they're helping people in the church and maybe even in the community in some instances by working hard and giving. You see, so do you see where I'm going with this? That that it's and we're going to talk about authority a little bit today. And we're going to talk more later on about that. But sometimes a man doesn't have any authority, but yet headship still applies to him. Okay, that's his maleness. Okay, so now, back to married men. Uh, Ray Ortland said this. He describes the married man's role this way. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, the man and the woman, the man bears the primary re responsibility 
to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. You see, there's that distinctive element, right? Not just to, okay, I'm the man, I have the say-so. Buck stops here. No, it's about God. Lead His family in a God-glorifying direction. What does God want from us as individuals in our family and as a family together? And then seeing to it that that is what happens in the family. Again, it requires the gospel, Ephesians 2, that he has to have come to faith in Christ to be able to do this in a God-honoring way. And he has to have the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, which, remember, is, is, serves to govern this whole section. That is what will make him distinctively Christian. Men ought to be leading their family and their church in developing Christ-like character. That should be one of our goals, men. Look at yourself first. Am I growing in this area? Am I becoming more like Christ? And if you're married, is my wife becoming more like Christ? If you have kids, are, are, are we trying to lead them to Christ? And if they've come to Christ, or, or, you know, am I helping them to grow to become more like Christ? Do I have an active hand or a part in that? But also in the lives of the people of your church. Men, are you connecting with each other in a way that... You know, you're you're kind of keeping tabs on your brothers in Christ. And are you growing? And there may be some of the sisters that you have, you know, because you and your wife have a relationship with or something. You know, you're just concerned. How are you doing? Are you growing? And and doing what you can. Some will do that through teaching and discipleship and counseling. And there's so many other ways uh, to do that. Are Are you involved that way? And so, men... Where you have authority, lead lovingly. Where you have no authority, lead by example. And, men, I want to exhort us here. Take a stand against disunity. Promote love for one another. Admonish, exhort, encourage, build up, comfort, use your gifts. Be actively involved in your wife's and your children's lives. And be active in the lives of church members. We need each other. We need to be working together. And men, we need to be leading in this. doesn't mean you say, well, I'm not an elder. I don't have authority. Remember what I just said. You don't have to have authority. You can lead by example. You can lead by encouragement. Okay, so. Okay, so far, we're all like, okay, this is good. Yeah. You know, the ladies are all, yes, yes. You know, tell them, John, you know. Connie's, you know, literally on the front row. Yes, you know, listen to yourself. But, feminists, there they are again, they warn that conservative Christian beliefs like we've been talking about, what we believe here, they lead to abuse of women and children. Quote, For instance, one recent study that received attention in Christianity today argued that Calvinist beliefs, that's us, perpetuate domestic violence myths, and we can talk about what that is later if you want, but you probably get the idea. Uh, In other words, that our beliefs, you know, promote, we we basically, if you're a Calvinist, then you automatically uh, tolerate and excuse violence against women. Okay, that's what they mean with those myths. 
because of their correlation with binary views of gender. In other words, we say what Genesis 1 and 2 says, what? That there are two sexes, right? Male and female. That's it. No other options, okay? Well, because we teach that, we're obviously, they're saying, leading people to, to more be more likely to abuse. And then lower levels of acceptance of social justice theory and emphasis on hierarchical relationships. In other words, they don't like us saying that the male is to be the head in the home, okay, and, and in the marriage. That, oh, no, we shouldn't have any kind of hierarchy at all. Okay. Now, granted, there are men who abuse women and children. Okay? I mean, I'm not going to pretend that that doesn't happen. It does happen. Uh, there are churches that abuse women and children, or they teach it, they encourage it. And uh, their doctrine does encourage it. it this, and, and sometimes they believe some of the same things we do. But there are things that they believe that we don't believe, and we would say that's sinful. And so they do exist. There are even Christian men who abuse women and children. But what some of them will do is they take these truths that we're talking about here and they twist those and they flip them upside down. They pervert them in order to promote their own selfish, egotistical desires. And and so they will use this, you know, this, and they'll have a handy, heavy-handed fist in their home. And and I don't I don't mean that they're lovingly and sacrificially leading. I mean it's like it's this way. And and they say the Bible tells me that's what I can do. Well, no, the Bible doesn't tell you that at all. Okay, and that's what we're going to be talking about. So. Is, like the feminists say, is the Bible's teaching the real problem? Okay, so they have concluded, and we're going to talk about that. They've concluded, based on research and everything, that Calvinistic conservative beliefs is what leads to abuse. As if people who don't buy into that never abuse. Is the Bible's teaching the problem? No. Our next major point this is this. Biblical teaching about male headship does not lead to abuse. It's not the teaching that leads to abuse. It's not the Bible's teaching, rather. Okay, so all these things we've been talking about, that, that men are to be the head in the, in the marriage, in the home, family, and in the church, that in itself does not lead to abuse. Al Mohler explains that Churches must make it abundantly clear that complementarianism, and that's what I've been presenting here through these sessions, that that's, you know, represents the biblical view. Complementarianism is not grounded in male superiority. In other words, men are not better than women, okay, which some people out there do say. We don't. Indeed, holding to male superiority directly contradicts the clear teaching of the Bible, and it demeans the glory of the image of God that is equally displayed by men and women. Complementarian theology, rightly articulated and exemplified, lived out, celebrates the glory of manhood and womanhood, or as I've used the term, maleness and then, of course, femaleness. That requires, when he talks about rightly articulated and exemplified, requires first the gospel, then it requires the Holy Spirit. Okay, we we have to get that. That is all the difference. 
Caleb Morrell in a Nine Marks article that's called Nominal Christianity, Not Complementarianism, Leads to Abuse. And so you can get the idea real quick what he's his point, right? He uses research by W. Bradford Wilcox, which shows that the statistics are misleading. So when feminists say, oh, we've got these studies that show that men who hold to Calvinistic beliefs, who hold to conservative beliefs that are taught in the Bible, that they are all more likely to abuse women and children, he says, Wilcox shows that those are misleading. He says, studies that seem to show that Conservative Christian beliefs lead to higher levels of abuse, is what they're claiming, the feminists. They get it wrong because they lump all conservative Christian men together without looking at other factors. They just say, okay, do they, do they say, yes, I'm, I'm a conservative Christian? Okay, and they just lump all of us together. And, and what they're wanting to do, and this is important, is that they're not... The feminists are not trying to lower the amount of abuse. They say they are. They probably think they are, but they're not. Because if they were, they would look at Wilcox's work and they would say, okay, we had it all wrong. We need to encourage, and I'm going to show you what it is we need to encourage. They, they won't do that. They'll, they'll just explain it away and excuse it. They're concerned with discrediting God's Word. That is what they want. Because remember, whose shoulders are they standing on? Liberalism, which undermines God's Word. That's the whole point of liberalism. Can't trust God's Word. We have to be able to trust our own ingenuity and our own, you know, thinking and being able to figure all this out on our own. And Okay, so going on. Morrell points out that Wilcox's more recent study is that the only, the only one that factors in the distinctive effect of church attendance on conservative Protestants, uh, his is the only one that does that, and Wilcox finds that when coupled with church attendance, theologically conservative views about marriage and gender actually correlate with the lowest rates of domestic violence. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that if you actually say, take men who, who hold to conservative Christian beliefs, in other words, what we hold to, what we hear in our church, and you say, okay, now the men who hold that, let's look at the ones who actually you know, are faithful in going to church. And there's some other things, too. We'll add to that. But if you put those together, those men, out of all groups, all groups, have the lowest evidence of domestic abuse. Okay. Going on. And here's where again you see evidence of what I've been trying to say from the word of God. It's the it's the effect of the gospel that's key. It isn't maleness alone. You have to have the you have to have the gospel, you have to be saved, regenerated, and you have to have the Holy Spirit filling you. Okay, Wilcox found that church-going conservative Protestant men spend more time with their children. They are more likely to hug and praise their children. Their wives report higher levels of satisfaction with the appreciation, affection, and understanding they receive from their husbands. And they spend more time socializing with their wives. They actually like their wives, right? And they want to be with them. It's, it's, 
all that, it, it isn't just that they're going to church, but there's all those elements as well. You see, those men, that sets them apart. That is why they have the lowest levels of domestic violence of any group of men. So, having the right beliefs by itself is not enough. Because there are conservative men who are not faithfully involved in a church and who are not doing these other things that, like being, you know, lovingly engaged with their wife. They're men who just have the right beliefs, right? Conservative men... Wilcox found, who aren't regularly plugged into a church and then doing those other things, actually has, that group has the highest level of abuse out of all the groups. So all of a sudden now, conservative men are divided into two groups, and one is on, you know, the the highest level of abuse, and the other is on the very lowest level of abuse. Well, okay, we shouldn't be surprised, right? But these studies come out and feminists throw them in our face and they say, see, it's because of what you believe. It's like, no, 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 let's divide it out. So a man must have solid biblical beliefs. He has to have that biblical foundation. He must be faithfully committed to his church. He needs to be surrounded by a godly community that are there to say, hey, brother, it's all the way you were talking to your wife. And like, you know, God's not okay with that, right? And someone who is lovingly engaged with his wife and children. Men who have all that are far less likely to be abusive than all other groups, including, surprise, surprise, men who have feminist beliefs. So those of us men who are faithfully involved in our church and we're doing all those other things, that the level of abuse among us is far, far lower than the people who are telling us that we're the most abusive, the feminists. So feminist men who go to mainline denominations, as as he talks about in the article, they have a higher level of abuse. And and including, you know, those who are just straight out unbelievers, we have a much lower level of abuse among us. Um, And what's interesting is that for men who... um, Subscribe to a, a feminist, to feminist beliefs. Church attendance made zero difference for them. Isn't that amazing? For conservatives, it makes all the difference. For them, it doesn't matter whether they go to church or not. Why do you think that is? They're not preaching the Bible because they don't believe the Bible is authoritative. And and so you see that that's the effect of God's word and the importance of God's word. And, and what I want to drive home is that it isn't just that we get the beliefs right. We have to get the how right, the character right, which is we find in the word of God. Okay. Remember the pattern of Jesus. How do we do this? So. We call the way that these godly men lead servant leadership. And what I'm talking about here with servant leadership, and that term is the the biblical concept, the evangelical concept of it, not the feminist version of it. Okay, now the feminists took that biblical term, or the term we use, 
And just like the member mutual submission, they've taken it and perverted it, okay? And they've redefined it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the biblical idea of servant leadership, and I'm a, we're going to talk about that. But because that concept of servant leadership is biblical, we shouldn't be surprised that it too is being attacked. For example, uh, non-tenant, he writes on his blog, He's written a book for men, uh, and then you look at his blog. He says, servant leadership is a dirty little phrase that has slipped into evangelical culture like a silk pillow over the face. He creates, and what he does here is he creates a straw man. And what is a straw man? Okay, so it's like a scarecrow. Okay, so you get a man's clothes and you stuff it full of hay, put a hat on him, and guess what? He's really easy to beat up. Okay, but that's not the actual man, right? He just made it look like a particular man, and he's easy to beat up. Okay, that's what he does here. And I'll show you. He says, evangelicals know, that's us, know that leaders are responsible for those under their care. But a servant leader, being, and this is, he's now using our word, servant leader, being subservient, see there's straw man. He cannot exercise power over them, the people that he's supposed to care for. What form does his responsibility then take? It must be the responsibility to make their lives easier. See, straw man. Because we don't believe that. Okay? All the people out there that I know of that teach servant leadership don't believe that. Don't teach that. It must be to make their lives easier, to carry their burdens, to make them happy. To suffer in their place. In other words, do their work for them and just whatever. So so the dad, the husband is supposed to say, what do you want me to do, dear? What do you want me to do, kids? That's the feminist version of servant leadership, not the evangelical one. But what he does is he takes the feminist definition and he puts it in the mouths of those of us that are evangelical, that we actually believe the gospel, Okay. He writes that if leadership is defined by servanthood, then authority and power become defined by subservience. That's a straw man. The servant leader, he says, won't be rightly wielding the power delegated to him by God. Hopefully, red flags are going up, okay? And so it's no wonder he prefers the term servant lordship rather than servant leadership. Red flags ought to be going up. Why? What did Jesus teach us? Jesus taught his disciples that they must not be like the unbelievers. What are they like? Jesus says that they're wielding their power like a club. And and his words, Jesus' words, they were lording it over those under their charge. Jesus says that's how the unbelievers do it. Instead, Jesus taught, it is not so, it's not to be so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. That's where we get servant leadership from. We don't get it from the feminists. We get it from Jesus. I know the feminists have have perverted that term. But we need to fight back and and keep that term and say, no, this is what that term means. Because it's a good, godly, Christ-honoring term. And he's going on, Jesus says, And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. And I I looked at his article to see what Tennant 
what he does with those verses, because he does quote some of those verses. Um, and talk, the one I just read, I think it was Mark's version of that, he quotes. <clears throat> he says what, that, what Jesus means there by serving is to serve by ruling. And he gives the example of a king. A king serves by ruling. So it's purely in the rulership, purely in the authority. That is the whole of headship and leadership. And he says what you can do to, to get that is just substitute instead of servant leadership. And he's already had servant lordship. He says now servant rulership. Okay, red flags going off? I hope so. Servant rulership. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about there. And he has a, a kind of, I won't go into it now, but a kind of a strange way of talking about when Jesus um, washed the disciples' feet. Well, what is a servant leader? What does that mean? Servant leader simply means that you lead the way Jesus led. Okay, that's all it means. Okay? He's our model. And we can put it this way, servant leadership is real leadership with a servant's heart. And I decided to throw in there to define what I mean by real. Real means not devoid of authority. Because a lot of people out there in, in Mr. Tennant's you know, camp, what they are saying is that, oh, when you say servant leadership and you say leadership, you're not talking about authority. You don't have any authority. You've given up your authority. Well, that is not true at all. Okay, and we're going to talk more about that later on. But... It is real leadership with a servant's heart. That's the part they miss. The servant's heart. You see, and you can see what he does in the article is that he, he and I'm getting down rabbit trails here, I'm sorry, but he confuses adjectives and nouns. Okay, so he says the adjective servant in servant leadership is what we do. No, it's not what we do, it's how we do it. Okay, and, and the problem is, is that then his, really his preferred adjective is, is authority because he's harping on that. And, well, if authority is how you do it, not the basis for why you do it, then it becomes authoritarian. That's what it means, if, if that's the how. And again, like I said, I'll, I'll develop this more later. These guys seem to be afraid to take the term servant, the name servant, but Jesus wasn't afraid to take the name servant. That was actually one of his main names. He was the servant of Yahweh. And he acknowledged, he himself acknowledged his lordship when he was washing his disciples' feet. And, and these guys try to make it sound like if we say that's our pattern, then it's like, okay, you know, uh, can I wash your feet for you? And, and that's a husband, that's a father, that's an elder. That's not worth saying. Because Jesus didn't give up his authority when he washed their feet. And he actually acknowledged, he said, you know, you call me teacher and Lord. You're right, I am. And so if your Lord does this, then you better do it. You see, that's what he's saying. Only a man with real strength of character can loving... And that, by that I mean Christ-likeness, okay? Christ-like character. Only a man with real strength of character can lead lovingly, sacrificially, and with a servant's heart. Say it again. Only a man with real strength of character can loving, lead lovingly, sacrificially, and with a servant's heart. And so let's think just a minute about Peter, the Apostle Peter. He he talked a big game, didn't he? I'll never leave you and forsake you. And, I, you know, I'll never deny you, Lord. 
And then he crumbled before a little servant girl. But later, the Holy Spirit transformed him by the power of the gospel. And we find him in Acts a very different man. He finally began to lead the way Jesus led. Servant leadership that imitates Christ is what God uses to build families, to build churches, and to impact those around us. I want to read another passage that exemplifies Christ for us, one you're familiar with. We've talked about a lot. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Let me read that. As This is to set our minds on the Lord's table. Paul, talking to the Philippian believers, said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a what? A slave. And being made in the likeness of men, way below him. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, as if that wasn't humbling enough. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on that despicable cross. Jesus is the model for all of us. But especially those of us, we have to get this message if if God has created us to be the head of our marriage, our family, our church, and headship for all, even if you're a single guy with no authority. What does that look like? Well, you look to Jesus. And and Paul does this, and Jesus sets it out for us. Jesus is our example. What is that example? He died for us. That's what Paul says. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself up for her. He died for her. That is our prime example. That's what I want us to think on in here at the Lord's table.